thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. This morning's Bible reading is found in Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through to 26. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went to his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Um, Let me begin with something unrelated to Acts at all. Uh, Last week I wasn't here because I was watching my daughter play soccer. A number of you have asked what the result was. They lost. Uh, uh, They scored first, had a great first half. Amelia played really well. I was delighted. The opposition scored a long-range bomb that ducked under the the bar in the second half. Extra time, went down to a penalty shootout, and they went down 3-2 in a penalty shootout. So it was a little bit depressing, but it was a wonderful game, uh, a lovely time in the sun, and uh, I was appreciative of the opportunity uh, to, to watch my daughter play. But that has very little to do with the book of Acts, so let us press on. Uh, We are dropping kind of into the middle of a story here, aren't we? It began with the fact that the religious leaders, the high priest and the Sadducees, which was one of the kind of ruling parties that was linked with the temple in particular, were filled with jealousy, we're told. Uh, And the reason why they're filled with jealousy is actually fairly obvious. If you have a quick look at the passage that uh, precedes it, we find that the apostles have had more and more and more people added to their numbers. They are held in incredibly high regard by the people, and they are healing people in just miraculous sorts of ways. Uh, So miraculous, in fact, that we're told that people would leave crippled people lying where Peter's shadow might pass over them. We're not told that that healed them or not, but that's certainly, I think, the implication, isn't it? So powerfully was the Spirit of God at work in the apostles' lives that even the mere passing of a shadow could bring healing. So you can imagine the high priests, the people who worked in the temple. That was their day job. They kind of got up from wherever they lived, and they they kind of made the commute through Jerusalem to the temple. They worked there to teach people about the law of God, to instruct them in proper worship, and they were held in high regard. 
They were the ones who people listened to, who heard how to interpret scripture, who understood the times. Uh, They were powerful people, not just politically, but religiously speaking. And now there's this group of people in their temple hanging out, getting all the praise. So they are, not that surprisingly, filled with jealousy. Just as Ananias' heart was filled by Satan, just as the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, they are filled with jealousy. And so they arrest the apostles. I doubt that this happened in the temple. As we saw at the end of that reading, they were kind of freaked out to use force in the temple. I suspect it took place while they were having dinner together or something, and they were kind of dragged off, all 12 of them, and put into prison. And I'm going to skip that story that we read and come back to it in a moment and just kind of get to what ends up taking place. Eventually, they do bring the uh, apostles to trial. They actually do manage to get them there. And at that point, we find that there are two charges that they place against them. This is found in the rest of chapter 5 there. If you have a look in verse 28, it says, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, in the name of Jesus. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And secondly, you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. These are the two charges that they lay against them. We told you not to preach in Jesus' name, and you keep doing it, and you're trying to make us look bad, which kind of misunderstands the point, but at the same time raises a fairly interesting perspective. You see, the religious leaders had executed Jesus because they believed that Jesus was a dangerous, blasphemous teacher. Someone who could disrupt in a very, very significant way the status quo. And not kind of just the good status quo, or the the, the bad status quo, but the good status quo. Uh, You get some uh, kind of messianic claimant wandering around saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the king of the Jews, and the Romans are going to get really cranky about that. That's going to end really badly for the people of Israel if we allow this to keep going. And so they had executed him on discernment that they felt that he was a dangerous blasphemer. For them to be guilty of his blood, the apostles would have to prove that Jesus was in fact innocent. The Sanhedrin knew that they'd condemned Jesus to death, but they would only be made guilty of his blood if they could prove that Jesus was innocent. And isn't that exactly what the apostles have been saying? In fact, it's exactly what the apostles say. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. And then they give us the same stuff we've been hearing since Acts chapter 2. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. And I don't think, again, that he's saying here, you are guilty of killing him. I think what they're saying is you so misunderstood who he was. You saw him as a traitor. You saw him as a a blasphemer. You crucified him. How misunderstood were we? Because God has raised him, and now God has exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. There you go. Remember they prayed for boldness at the end of chapter 4? Sounds like they got it, right? Well, the the Sanhedrin, we're told, are furious. They've gone from jealous to rage, and they want to kill them. Now, Luke just kind of says it. They wanted to put them to death. But let me just pause there for a moment. 
You may have heard the phrase that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that wherever uh, Christianity has, tr- has been squashed and put under the thumb and imprisoned and when Christians have been killed, what tends to happen is the church grows. I'm not convinced, though, that in this case, that it would have been good for the church for the 12 apostles who walked with Jesus to be executed so early in the peace. This is a real threat. These people had the authority to do this. And so the the apostles are now at the risk of their lives. And they are saved by a man named Gamaliel. Curious little story, really. It's this funny little speech that we're told. If you have a look at it as it follows on. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed the group. And his address is really quite simple. He says, consider carefully what you intend to do. He says, some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed, and all his followers were scattered. He basically, if I can put it in modern parlance, he says, do you remember Y2K bug? Remember how worried we were about that? And, uh, well, that turned out to be not so big a deal. Hmm? That's what he's saying here. Remember Thutis? We were all freaked out about him. He had like 400 followers. We were all worried about what he was doing. He was really dangerous. And he got killed and the whole thing fell apart. Uh, And Judas. You remember Judas? Same thing. We were really concerned about what he was teaching. He had heaps of people rallied to him. You remember the story. It was a huge stress for us. And then he was killed and the whole thing came to nothing. It was just, it was ineffective. We we don't even think about it anymore. I have to remind you about these things because we thought they were important and they turned out not to be. He says, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And his speech, we're told, persuaded them which I find suspicious. Because it's not a very compelling speech, is it? I mean, he gives two examples of a guy who had 400 followers and then a guy who had a band of people, both of whom led armed revolts. And he compares that with the peaceful apostles who have perhaps as many as 8,000 people meeting in the temple every day, healing left, right, and center. He goes, these are the same sorts of things, aren't they? No, no, they're not. And hasn't it already gotten out of control? Judas was in Galilee. It's the backwater. Revolt all you like. This is happening in the temple. And the the people who are furious, so furious they want to kill them, go, yeah, that's a really good point. I suspect that God was involved somehow, somewhere, that they weren't saved by Gamaliel's fine speech. Christian tradition says he became a Christian uh, at some point in time. We don't know whether that's true or not. But God certainly steps in here. And isn't this a powerful apologetic for the gospel then? Imagine Theophilus, the first reader of Acts. He's reading this after Paul has been imprisoned in 60 or 62 AD, somewhere in there. And he's reading this story and he reads this little speech and he goes, oh, look at that. If this is of human origin, it will fail, but 
If it's from God, you won't be able to stop it. And here I am somewhere in the Roman Empire reading about the fact that this wasn't stopped. God is in this. It's an apologetic, the gospel as well. Well, they called them back in, persuaded by this speech of wait and see, because you know, whenever something bad happens and we wait and see, how does that end up for us? Right? That's the point of this speech. Nonetheless, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then we have this little report. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day, uh, in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They were rejoicing. How good is this, they said. And what a marked difference from chapter 4. Remember when Peter and John were imprisoned overnight? Kind of held in custody, really. They were doing some weird stuff in the temple after they healed that lame man and everyone was freaking out. And so they just kind of held them in custody to, to see what was happening. And the next morning they questioned them and they ordered them not to speak in Jesus' name. And remember what Peter and John do? They left and they went back to the brethren. They went back to the, the believers and they told them what had happened. And remember their prayer? Oh Lord, see and hear what these people are saying. Act on our behalf. Give us boldness to, to be able to proclaim your name. They were apprehensive. They were anxious. They were fearful of what might happen. Look what's happened. They've just been flogged and they walk out going, Hallelujah! Something's changed. I think God's answered their prayer, hasn't he? And it wasn't just for boldness in chapter 4. It was for boldness everywhere and for the eyes to see they say, yes, we've been disgraced, but you know what? It's only disgrace in some people's eyes. In reality, we are following in the very footsteps of Jesus. He was misunderstood. We've been misunderstood. Yes. They don't question their communication method. They just realize and recognize what's taking place. But let me go back to that little story that was read for us that I've kind of skipped over. Uh, apart from the, the kind of the really humorous bit of the temple guards going to the, the jail and finding the guards still on guard and the door still locked but nobody in the prison. I just think that's kind of funny uh, to think that there'd be guards in an empty cell but just making sure that <clears throat> nobody left, right? Uh, apart from that kind of humor piece, I think there's something really quite significant for us. The apostles are imprisoned. And, and for a certain period of time, and, and, and overnight at least, the gospel is imprisoned. I've talked about it around communion. It is so easy for us, isn't it, to allow the good news to become imprisoned in us. It's so easy to allow the gospel to be silenced in our lives. Sometimes it's our own hypocrisy. You know, I, I can't tell someone about Jesus. They're just going to look at me and go, really? You are telling me about how to, how to live, how, about how to follow Jesus? You're, you're not even consistent enough in it. And, and I know it to be true. Or, or my fear, what if they ask me that question? I have no idea how to answer that question or that list of questions. What if they ask me a question and I, and I end up looking like a fool and make the gospel look like a fool? Or our own doubts, our uncertainties. What if they ask me about this? And I'm not even sure what I believe. 
I've got doubts on that area. I'm, I'm, I'm uncertain in that area. And what ends up happening is that the gospel is quieted and silenced in our lives, isn't it? We, we don't speak. We don't proclaim the word. And yet, what's interesting to me is that the apostles here are released from prison, right? They're brought out. The, the word is actually used in a couple of other contexts in Acts to describe Moses bringing the people out of Egypt. It's, 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 a, it's a word of salvation. But isn't it curious that when the angel of the Lord opens the doors and brings them out, he doesn't say, here's some fake passports, run for the border. I think you can make it to Antioch. I'll cover for you. He doesn't give them false kind of passports or IDs. He doesn't give them kind of money and say, here's the bus, hurry and get out of town. He doesn't say, relocate to Bethlehem. There's a great warehouse there. You can kind of settle in there. It'd be fantastic. What does he say? They've just been arrested for speaking in the name of Jesus. And he says this, go, stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. Now, the temple here is not like church today. This is not like you being arrested and uh, an angel setting you free and saying, go, stand in the auditorium at Gamia Baps and tell them about the new life. Nah. This is, go and interrupt the AFL final. <laughs> go stand in the middle of the pitch and declare to them the good news. Go stand someplace where everyone's going to see you and tell them the good news. Go where they don't want you to go and say what they don't want you to say. Isn't that a curious thing to do? Why, why do we take risks? Because the freedom that we have been given in Christ invites risk, doesn't it? This release called them into a risk. Why do we risk? I was thinking a bit about it. I think sometimes we risk because our lives are a little bit dull and we want a little bit of a buzz. I think that's why people jump off bridges with bungee cords attached to them, right? It's a little bit dull, let's kind of get some adrenaline going and woo, right? And sometimes there's something in that where we kind of want to do something a little bit challenging. Is that why the apostles do this? Do they go, oh, this is going to be epic? This is going to be such a buzz going in the temple? Oh, we might die. Come on! No, I don't think so. Sometimes we take risks to, to test ourselves, don't we? We've learned certain skills, we've put certain things into practice, and then we have a bit of a go. We want to kind of test ourselves, see how well we've learned a lesson, to see how well we've learned a skill, and we kind of, we risk a little bit to see if we've kind of arrived. Is that why the apostles have done this? They kind of say, well, this is a big challenge for us. We've never done something quite like this. What do you reckon, boys? Are we up for it? I don't think so. Sometimes we risk because we're desperate. We've got no other option. We're at the end of our rope. All the things that we've tried haven't worked, and so we get desperate, and someone says, what about this crazy idea? And we go, yeah, all right, fine. I guess so. Is that why the apostles, have they gotten out of the prison and they've kind of thought to themselves, we're desperate, nothing else is working? Sometimes we take risks, though, because we are confident I think sometimes all of these things are muddled up together. I don't think it's as clear-cut as one or the other. But sometimes we take risks because we are confident that we can overcome the risk. 
It often appears far riskier to those outside than those inside. Have you ever been in those discussions? You're trying to make a risky decision and people outside think that it's like incredibly risky and you think, no, I don't think it is. I'm confident in this. That sounds like the apostles, doesn't it? They're not looking for a a rush. They're not looking to test themselves. They're not desperate. They are confident. They are filled with confidence in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit. And so they take a risk. And it's a big risk. They nearly lose their lives. They end up being flogged, publicly flogged, and then kind of sent back out amongst the community, shamed and disgraced amongst those that they are trying to reach. And yet they took the risk because they were confident in what Jesus had called them to do and the power that he had given to them to be bold and to speak. You and I, by faith, have been set free. What risk will you take for the gospel? Where is the Holy Spirit sending you? And what does he want you to say? Who do you need to say and speak to about the new life? What risk will you and I take for the gospel? Because our freedom invites risk. Because in our freedom, there's confidence. We are a church for the churched. And God calls us to be a church for the world. What risks will you take? What risks will I take in the freedom that we have been given for the good news, for the new life that we have? Everywhere we go and in everything we do, we will invite everyone to follow Jesus so that in his name, lives might be transformed. Amen? Let me pray for us. And then we're going to conclude our uh, service in worship and an invitation for prayer. And if you uh, want prayer for anything, health, uh, poverty, decisions, uh, whatever, we'd love to pray for you. If you want prayer for boldness, for confidence, for more freedom, if you want boldness in the opportunities that you've been given, we'd love to pray for you as well. So I'll pray, the team will come, and then I'll invite the prayer team to come and lead us as well. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we have already celebrated, you have set us free, and we delight in your freedom. Thank you that you did not leave us to our own devices, but have rescued us have thrown open the doors of of our prisons, have opened our eyes, and have called us out and invited us to take a risk for the new life that you have given to us. Lord Jesus, we are so easily silenced. It's so easy to remain comfortable in our prison cell. And we acknowledge our hypocrisy and our sin and our fear and our doubts and our inadequacies, pray that you might fill us with your spirit and give us a boldness to take risks for the gospel, risks for the good news, 
risks for the new life that we have experienced in you. Holy Spirit, fill us again and send us out. Give us eyes to see those divine appointments that you have set for us and the boldness to step into them. For we ask this in Jesus' name.